Hey, this is Dallas Verity from the Shipwreck Over Safety podcast, and you're listening to my friend Jason Elam on one of my favorite podcasts, Messy Spirituality Podcast. Enjoy. 20 years ago, my own spiritual evolution started when a relative gave me a videotape of a message preached at a conference at the Vineyard Church of Cincinnati. The message was titled, Who's Lost, Us or Them? The message reverberated in my spirit and changed my entire approach to ministry. And I'm still living in the overflow of those words today. I'm excited to welcome that speaker to this podcast episode today. My guest today is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. A former college English teacher and pastor, he is a passionate advocate for a new kind of Christianity, one that is just, generous, and working with people of all faiths for the common good. He's a faculty member at the Living School and podcaster with Learning How to See, which I love and highly recommend, which are both a part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. He is also an Auburn Senior Fellow and a co-host of Southern Lights. His newest book is Faith After Doubt, which came out last year, and his next release, releasing next month, Do I Stay Christian?, It can be pre-ordered now. We'll get more information about that in this conversation. It is an incredible honor to welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Brian McLaren. Hey, Jason. I'm so happy to be with you. And I actually remember that talk at Cincinnati Vineyard. That's amazing. (laughs) That's been a while ago. I'm so glad that that had an impact on you. And uh, that's just great. Great to hear. Well, it did. I I was uh, very conservative, kind of stuck in my ways, Southern Baptist minister. A relative worked at the Vineyard Cincinnati, and he just said, hey, I think you should listen to this. And man, it just, it was like scales fell off of my eyes, and it's had me asking questions of myself and my faith that I still struggle with today. And it has just helped me find so much freedom. And I'm so grateful for you and your work. So I just want to start off by saying thank you for all the books you've written, for all the talks you've given, for what you mean to the church. Thank you so much. Well, that's uh, encouraging. And thanks for reading and taking it seriously and, uh, and inviting me to be part of this conversation because I think that podcasts like yours are well, I, I often say I think they're the counterpart of Luther's ninety-five theses put on the uh, uh, put on the Wittenberg Chapel door, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but but I think they're even better because people get to be part of extended conversations, which is a, a great thing. Right, that's what I love about it as well. We usually start off with a guest talking about their spiritual backstory. Uh, I know we get bits and pieces of it in your work, but. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? I was. I was raised in a little uh, Protestant fundamentalist sect called the Plymouth Brethren. If people have ever heard of Garrison Keillor, that was his background, or if they've ever heard of Jim Wallace from Sojourners, that was his background. Very conservative, very strict, very tight-knit, close-knit group. I, I experienced lots of love and and all the rest. I, you know, many, many good things in my heritage, but I was pretty sure literally by the time I was 12 years old, that this this wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> so in what ways has your faith evolved since that introduction to the faith from the Plymouth Brethren? <laughs> oh my goodness, I, I wouldn't know where to start uh, on answering that. It's changed in so many ways. Each time I thought, 
this is the last change I'm going to need and then I'll have it all right and everything will be fine forever. <laughs> and so it's just, Yes, I understand that well. So I guess I would say virtually that everything has changed. You probably remember the old... Uh, uh, the old ship of Theseus uh, parable. What what would happen if you had a ship and uh, after it was sailing for ten years, one of the planks in the hull rotted out, and they had to chisel it out and replace it. And then another five years, another one rotted out. And what would happen after a hundred years if the ship under the same name had all new planks? Would it still be the same ship? And I guess it's the same in our bodies. You know, we we change the molecules that are part of us every several years, but we have the same name. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how it feels. Part of your faith journey was your calling to ministry. As I mentioned, you were a pastor for more than two decades. How did that calling come to you? So as I said, I was kind of on my way out. I, I didn't, one of the things about growing up fundamentalist first is you don't know you're fundamentalist. You just think you're a Christian. And, um, and you think that your form of Christianity is the only valid form. So in my teenage years, I thought, I, I this just isn't going to work. A few more years, I'll leave home and I'll be uh, beyond this. But I had a very dramatic, what some people would call a kind of charismatic experience on a retreat that I was invited to that I really went to because I thought there'd be some pretty girls there. And, and that spiritual experience sort of put me on the Christian path, but on different terms. And from that point on, I was one of those people. This, this was the 19, early 1970s, uh, part of what some people may have read about or heard about called the Jesus movement. And I was, I just had both feet on the path and I was moving forward. And it wouldn't have mattered if I became a pastor or stayed with my original plan of being a college English teacher. Whatever I was going to do, I was going to do it as an expression of my faith and, and, you know, with a kind of higher purpose involved. So, um, uh, what, what ended, ended up happening is, my wife and I had invited uh, some people to our home and for a little dis, uh, discussion group shortly after we got married, and that grew and grew and eventually became uh, a little church. And I continued to teach uh, college for several years. And then eventually, just the demands of being a husband and a father and a pastor and a full-time teacher led me to say, I, I don't think I can do all of these. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up leaving teaching to work at the church. I really didn't have a career plan. I, it was more, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time and ended up doing that for 24 years. In documenting what I guess today we would call deconstruction stories, I talked to a lot of pastors who have left local church ministry and they've got all kinds of battle scars and horror stories. Was your experience as a pastor for over two decades, was that a positive for you and your family or would you think more positive than negative or the reverse? It was a difficult positive, but I was incredibly fortunate because I'd been the church planter. I didn't inherit somebody else's problems. <laughs> so all of the problems were my own. But uh, I, actually a really significant moment came one, uh, gosh, I think it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. We were going to take our little leadership group away for a weekend. And uh, one of the... Uh, and our leadership team was a mix of men and women and people from a lot of different backgrounds. But one of the uh, fellows who was on that uh, part of that group said, hey, this weekend when we go away on our retreat, 
I have a question I really want to get on the agenda. I said, what's that? He said, well, you're having all these questions. And I think I had just written my first book at that point. He said, you're having all these questions. You're putting them in your books. He said, I really think we have to have a discussion about whether these are your questions or whether they are our questions as a church and whether this is your journey or whether this is our journey. And he was saying this sympathetically, like, he wanted everybody to buy into this journey. And I just thought a lot of people aren't ready for that. And I, I begged him, I said, please don't bring that up. We've got enough other stuff to deal with. Let's deal with that down the road. But sure enough, that weekend, he brought it up. <laughs> and to my utter surprise, the, the real consensus in the room was we're all on the same journey. We're asking the same kind of questions. And those really, that was actually probably right around the time I was writing a book that got quite a bit of attention called um, A New Kind of Christian. And so I was fortunate that the leaders of our congregation said we we're on this journey together. But anytime a person transferred into our little church from another church, they would bring all of their, you know, assumptions and expectations and so on to the table, which meant that just again and again and again, we'd have to go through the same uh, we'd have to sort of gently introduce them to that journey and process and set of questions that are often called deconstruction. And some liked it and some didn't. So it was, and, and sometimes people would try to be involved for a while and then they, it would be too much for them. And, and uh, so it, it, it was difficult, but it was a, a great experience. And, um, and I, I was really, really fortunate to have the kind of people I, I did as part of the team. Well, I'm so glad you had that um, after talking with so many pastors and, and really my own personal experience as a pastor, where you are inheriting a belief system, you know, in an existing church or from their previous congregation where the folks were before they came to you. There, there's so much fire that gets taken oh my. Uh, by pastors. It's so true. And, and can I just say, um, Jason, that uh, and these conversations were happening in the very early 1990s. Well, <laughs> I cannot and, imagine. <laughs> and, and what was pushing us in this direction was that things were beginning in the 1990s that have just gained momentum every single year up until the present. And what we now call the religious right and the whole ph phenomenon of Trump supporting evangelicals, all of that, what really the... The beginnings of it went even farther back, but in the early 90s, it just seemed the culture war rhetoric was intensifying. So that forced us to have to make some of those choices. You know, we had a lot of gay people who came to the church and they need to, needed to know if they were safe. And, and, uh, we tried to make them safe, but we could never predict when somebody was going to say something incredibly insensitive or, or hurtful. So, we were just in the early stages of that, but what was beginning then has just accelerated now. And, and so the culture war is, you know, in, in full, uh, uh, we, we really reached a kind of, it's gone from culture war to civil war in some ways. And, and, uh, and the viciousness of people is so, so much more intense now. Yeah. Well, and I think you've tried to address that, right, with the Learning How to See series. You've yes. really helped us identify the filters and biases that we are carrying around that we might not even be mindful of that have taught us to see the world and our fellow humans in a certain way, Yeah. Uh, folks of other faiths. And so, again, you, you've... <sighs> 
when you identify a problem, you certainly go to work and uh, we, we appreciate that work. Uh, I remember when a new kind of Christian came out and there was a backlash, at least in the circles that I traveled in in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, I can't imagine dealing with that backlash. I think Rob Bell would understand this well too when yeah. Love Wins came out. Trying to pastor a church while teaching a message that uh, seems new, even though I don't think it's actually as new as, <laughs> you know, I think it was much more orthodox than it was given credit for being. How were you able to navigate all that you were dealing with in that season while pastoring a church? <laughs> well, uh, in, in fact, I was able to do it because in the church, we were seeing how that struggle and journey was saving people's lives and, and helping people. I, I don't mean saving like getting them saved in all that traditional language, but I mean literally like people would just say to us, if this church weren't here, I don't know where I'd be. So we just felt that we were uh, providing an off-ramp to some really harmful kinds of Christian life and communal life and so and so on. But it it was tricky. Um it was tricky. Uh I I I really got to see an ugly side of the kind of evangelical world. And a lot of the meanest people, and you'll understand this, were Southern Baptists. I mean there were people who did things that were kind of dirty tricks. And yeah, it, it, it was, there was some ugly stuff that we had to get through. Did that stuff lodge with you? Did it, did it hurt you personally? Or did you, uh, you're so good on the uh, learning how to see series. Uh, you're, you're so good at seeing other people's uh, biases and understanding that it's not personal for them. It's a mindset but that stuff's got to hurt when it's aimed at you, right? Yeah, it, especially at the beginning. Um, at the beginning, Jason, I wasn't prepared. You know, I was just in my 30s. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, this sounds so naive, but I just, you know, I, I thought, gosh, I'm serving God. Everybody's going to be happy <laughs> about all this um, at, at very, very early on. But when the negative feedback came, actually, there was one a pivotal experience that I had. After A New Kind of Christian came out, I was contacted by the editor of a big Christian magazine. Um, and he said, I really don't like your book, but I really think it's important. And I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to have three reviewers review it. One critical, uh, no, one sympathetic, one critical, and one hostile. And then I'm going to allow you to write a response. And these will come out in three successive issues. So the first month, the a sympathetic one came out. Second month, the critical one came out. Third month, the hostile one came out. And the hostile one was a barn burner. And to make matters worse, and this part nobody knew at the time, but the author of that came to, contacted me and and po did, he hid from me that he was writing a hostile review. And he asked me all these questions. And I remember feeling really creepy about it. But as soon as I said, why are you asking me these kinds of questions? Then I, it, it was clear he had this hidden agenda to gain ammunition to further <laughs> you know, discredit me and his piece. So after that, I had to write my response. And I stayed up, uh, oh, you know, till... 
12.30 or 1, which was very late uh, for me one night writing it. And the next morning, uh, fortunately, I didn't hit send that night. And the next morning I got up and I read what I'd written and it seemed so passive aggressive and it seemed so, you know, uh, I, I just was embarrassed about it. And I realized if I'm going to keep writing, I'm going to get a lot more of these kinds of uh, reviews. Uh, and if I'm going to try to defend myself, I'm going to become a defensive person. And I, I, I don't want to be that. And so I threw that document out and started over. And I think that that experience became my sort of baptism into being a grown-up and having to try to deal with some of these critiques in, in a more grown-up way. And, um, and, and I'll tell you another thing that happened around that time. Uh, m- many folks might remember uh, a, a wonderful fellow named Dallas Willard. He was an author, and Dallas and I were good friends. And Dallas once gave me this uh, prayer uh, that had been written by a Serbian Orthodox uh, bishop. And he just handed it to me and said something like, I think you're going to need this. And the prayer was called, A Prayer Concerning Enemies. <laughs> and uh, I kept it on my desk. And if folks want to look it up, they can go to my website, which is brianmclaren.net. And if you just put in the little search bar, Prayer for Enemies, it'll come right up. But I, I have to say, what that prayer did is it helped me process my angst internally and not on paper publicly. <laughs> so, so that did me some good. I was so excited when your book Faith After Doubt came out because of your specific background and what you've meant to me over the years. I knew that you would be uniquely suited to write to the stream that I'm in. Yeah. Um, about struggling with the questions. And you did that so beautifully in that book. And I'm equally as excited about the follow-up to that book, Do I Stay Christian? What led you to write to this stream of um, strugglers? Yes, yes. I used to be afraid that Christianity would wither away and die. In, in recent years, and frankly, especially since 2016, but even before that, I've been more afraid that Christianity would experience a resurgence in its ugliest forms, in its most hateful, bigoted, judgmental, violent, hateful forms. And if people aren't aware, there have been plenty of hateful forms of Christianity in our 2,000 years of history. And there is nothing to guarantee that even more hateful forms won't emerge and do their ugly work in the future. So I am, have been of the belief in increasingly over, you know, recent years that many people are leaving Christianity because they can tell there's a kind of darkness that, that, that or a kind of bitterness or a kind of viciousness that is accelerating in so many Christian circles. Uh, you know, we see it in the QAnon conspiracy and uh, all of the sort of anti-science. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll just speak in my own opinionated way, but anti-science idiocy and foolishness. Um, and so I just felt like people are leaving for good reasons. Um, and I want to try to talk about what those good reasons are. And I think it's possible for people who want to stay to stay for good reasons too, having their eyes open to all of the reasons to leave. In fact, 
I, I don't think people should stay unless they're willing to face the reasons, the good reasons to leave. Um, and so that, that's what really gave, gave birth, uh, to, to the book. And when I actually conceived of them, I conceived of them, uh, of writing them together in this order, faith after doubt to be a somewhat positive way for people to understand that questioning, that, that, that questioning and doubt are not the enemy of faith. Questioning and doubt are the enemy of authoritarianism. And, and actually faith that doesn't ask questions is something else. It's, it's fundamentalism. It's not that real faith is all about living with the unknown and, and having a curious attitude toward mysteries that we know are too big to ever get our heads around. So, uh, that's, that's what I wanted to write first. And then I wanted to deal as directly as I could with the realities that anyone faces who decides to identify as a Christian. So those two books, yeah, kind of took shape together. Well, I think you've done an amazing job uh, in this new release, especially uh, as I was reading it. I, I felt like, you know what, this is what fair and balanced actually looks like because you do lay out arguments for why people might want to walk away from Christianity. And you're very fair in those. You don't sugarcoat them at all. You just put them out there. And then you follow that with some reasons why people might be wanting, might be willing to stay in Christianity. You make the argument for and against, which I love. Let's talk first about the reasons to walk away. You mentioned violence, institutionalism, money, white patriarchy, colonialism, among other things, as reasons people walk away from the faith. Can you talk about some of those? What damage has been done? by the Christian church. Oh my. Well, look, one of the things I say early in the book is that as a child, I was taught about the wonderful things Christians have done and almost none of the terrible things. And I was taught all the terrible things Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and Hindus have done and almost none of the wonderful things. And I just think an honest answer is that every religion, every political system, every nation has done some beautiful things and ha- and has done some not so beautiful things. And to me, a lot of what we see in later Christian history begins very, very early by the end of the first century and into the second century. And that's when Christianity that was primarily a Jewish movement or actually a group of Jewish movements had a turn toward anti-Semitism. And the the history of Christian anti-Semitism is absolutely chilling. I think at the end of that first chapter, I said, this reason alone could make me decide to leave Christianity and never want to come back until the Christian religion had a really sober accounting of its crimes against the Jewish people. Um, and so that one, and that's one that I didn't learn about well, it's, it's interesting. I, it might be interesting for everybody to think about when they first heard of the Holocaust. So I'm an old guy. I was born in 1956. So I was born 11 years after the end of World War I. And now 11 years doesn't seem, I'm sorry, World War II. And now 11 years doesn't seem very long at all, right? But I remember I was probably in sixth or seventh grade the first time I heard of the Holocaust. I asked my mother what it was, and it was fresh in her mind because 
you know, she'd been a young woman when she she told me about seeing the articles and the photographs in the paper of people who've been kept in the prisoner of war camps and people who've been kept in the in the in the concentration camps, the killing camps. Uh, and how they look like skeletons when the war was over. And, and it's very similar to the kind of atrocities we're seeing in Ukraine right now of, you know, these mass killings and, and rape and torture and all of these other unspeakable things. And so I remember learning about the Holocaust and thinking how terrible those people were. I never even thought, I knew nothing about the history of Christian pogroms where Christians periodically through the Middle Ages would round up all the Jews and either banish them or kill them, um, uh, drive them from their homes. Uh, So I remember when I learned about that, I just felt like, why have people kept this this a secret? I felt like I was suddenly waking up that I was in a dysfunctional family with some really dirty laundry that that nobody would tell you about until you found it on your own. So that was one chapter that I think really, uh, in my own experience, became very much of a wake-up call. But then you, a lot of people have heard about um, inquisitions in the Middle Ages and, and the way that Christians treated their fellow Christians who dared to disagree about something. Uh, and so, and that history is incredibly disturbing. And then you learn about the Crusades and the era of colonialism, which I'm more and more seeing as one extended expression of a very ugly form of Christianity. And uh, yeah, and then it just goes on to things that are more contemporary um, and, and that all of us will have experienced, such as institutionalism or the role of money, um, how money uh, has way more power in our churches than most of us like to admit. Um, and uh and then, oh my gosh, the issue of race, where, where, which, uh, it, it, I mean, as we speak, uh, I live in Florida, you know, my, my state government, like the state government of Texas and many other states, is trying to keep children from learning accurate history about uh, 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 the racial history of the United States. So, and, and many pastors and, and now have made being woke being a sin, as if being asleep and blind our virtues. I mean, can you imagine Jesus, what he would say, the kind of language he would use about blind leaders of the blind who are leading people into a ditch? Mm, well, as a, as a fellow Floridian, I'm, I'm really concerned about our state government and so much of it is carrying a cross and it's so disturbing to me. I, I've got other questions scripted out, but I really, you're somebody that I would want to ask the following. How will history judge the American church in our era, hmm. 2016 to present? Well, can I just say, uh, Jason, I think it depends. There's, there's an old saying, history is written by the victors. And so what the victors, so right now we're all hearing about this, how in Russia, the vast majority of people, especially older people, all believe the absolute BS lies that Vladimir Putin is telling them about the war, which he won't even call a war, in, uh, in Ukraine. And most people, they t- tap in, in Russia, tap into that uh, government-run news, news station, and they believe what they're told. And it's all carefully scripted, and the truth is, is distorted and hidden. 
and uh, and he's shut down you know, media of social media where people could learn otherwise. And if protests happen now, you face very long, you know, prison sentences if you protest. Um, And the fact is, Christians, white Christians, rich white Christians could win and they could rewrite history. And so, and and they will be seen as heroes And, and their death toll and their crimes and their stupidity and their lies will all be hidden because they will whitewash the history. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. And if that doesn't happen, then I think what's going to happen in 100 years or 200 years from now is if the Christian faith still exists, if it doesn't completely discredit itself, then I think we're going to look back on Christian history the way we look back on human history. And we say, oh, people used to treat women that way. Oh, people used to treat LGBTQ people that way. Oh, people used to treat people of other races that way. And thank God we grew. Thank God we outgrew those harmful ways of seeing one another and seeing the world. We used to exploit the world and not even care how much we sucked out of the earth and how much toxin we pumped back into it. Oh, we've learned now how to take care of the earth and live in harmony with the earth. And what they're going to do is they're going to say major parts of Christianity were on the wrong side of history uh, and uh, some parts were on the right side. And when we think of that, I think what it should say to us is, if we are Christians, we'll, it will make it worth it for us to say, I would like my great-great-grandchildren to know that I tried to s- stand up uh, for, for what was right and if the same is true if you're Jewish or Buddhist or atheist or whatever, because the fact is, uh, the problems that we face, those problems you mentioned of biases and flaws in our logic and reasoning and self-aggrandizing, self-congratulating ways of thinking, they're, 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 they're widespread in Christianity as they are widespread in humanity. Um, I found your chapter on our legendary founder, particularly compelling. You quote the brilliant Diana Butler Bass who Mm. wrote, because of Jesus, I know it sounds corny, but I love Jesus when asked why she continues to be a Christian. Who is Jesus to you? And how have your views about Jesus and your relationship with Jesus evolved over the years? Yeah, let let me start with the end of that uh, question. And then I'll, I'll try to get back to who is Jesus to me. I was taught that Jesus was born to die. I don't know how many times I heard that. Interestingly, that's never in the Bible, you know, but it was the most, the truest statement anybody could say. Jesus was born to die. And we had a lot to say about Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. Um, we had almost nothing to say about how Jesus spent his days for the three and a half years of his kind of public life, teaching, caring for the sick, building a movement, really, uh, doing all the things that movement leaders do. And so I grew up thinking that Jesus' main purpose in coming was to solve something called the problem of original sin or total depravity. And so we could be granted a card to get to heaven, like a, a carte blanche or a credit card. Jesus built up the credit to get us into heaven. Um, and we just ignored Jesus' life, you know, even in the creeds, it's so interesting. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. And it, it goes from his birth to his death, and his whole life is skipped over. Uh, so what's happened to me in, in the years in, in between is that I was a pastor, and I would teach and preach from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And I started thinking, that stuff in between his birth and death is really, really interesting. And I have become a big believer in what he said and did and taught. And uh, and uh, it really came to a head for me, oh gosh, 20 some years ago, when I realized that that phrase in Jesus' mouth, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, was not talking about heaven after you die, because in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, may your kingdom come. It's not about us going to heaven. It's about God's will and God's goodness coming to earth. And uh, and so that's the biggest change. I, I now see Jesus as a brilliant, if you want to use a word like inspired, courageous, insightful leader who believed that the world needed to be changed and had a nonviolent way of doing that, that emphasize love and a, a concern for justice. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how I see Jesus. And that's uh, why, like Diana, I love, I love Jesus, but not the Jesus who's a formula to get souls into heaven after they die, but instead Jesus, the historical figure who, um, who I know this isn't in any of the creeds, but who is just absolutely brilliant. I mean, I just, I'm, blown away again and again when I read the Sermon on the Mount or the story of the prodigal son, just the brilliance and insight that's there. You start chapter 18 of the book by saying, I wish you could see what I see. Right at this point where major sectors of Christianity have never looked more misguided or regressive, at least not in our lifetimes, we are closer to a breakthrough than we've been in a long, long time. What evidence do you see for that kind of optimism? Okay, well, I, I talked a little while ago about the sort of ugly things that we're seeing happen in Florida and Texas and Missouri and, you know, Iowa and so many other states. And, and in, all, in all those cases, it's white Christians who are showing their ignorance and their unacknowledged racism and patriarchy and all the rest. So, uh, and carelessness about the environment and all the rest. So, but here's the interesting thing that's happened in the last hundred or so years. They're, the people who were most mistreated by Christians, black people who were enslaved, Native Americans whose lands were stolen and who were treated as less than human, uh, women, gay people, and Jews, they have over the last 100 years given themselves permission, white people certainly weren't, weren't going to give that permission to them. They've given themselves permission to go back and read the Gospels and read the New Testament, seeing what they see from their vantage point. And what is absolutely stunning is to see the ways that, well, let me just say it this way, as a guy who grew up fundamentalist, who memorized huge passages of scripture, who learned so much Bible by the time I was 12 or 13 that, you know, I mean, uh, I meet a lot of people who, I, I met a lot of people as a teenager who went to seminary and I knew way more of the Bible than they knew. But to see that these people are seeing things in the Bible that are so obviously there that I was cleverly trained uh, to miss. Um, and uh, so, the existence of black theology and and liberation theology and feminist womanist theology and uh, and queer theology and, and all of these different theologies from people who've been excluded. Oh my goodness! It's such a rich repository, 
And, uh, and, and one of the things I say in that chapter is that wouldn't it be a shame if a white guy like me, right as these people in some ways are helping us see the treasures that were there and helping us see how bankrupt that white theology had been all along, that if I walked away right when they're bringing all of their treasures to the table. So, uh, yeah, that's to be one of the most uh, inspiring things of all. We, we are at a, a, like, I, I just say this as a guy who's 66 this year. In my lifetime, there has never been as much great, exciting, creative, liberating theology as there is now. And, and it's, it's, it's just breathtaking. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, about half our listeners are still attending their local church. Many of them are seriously struggling with staying connected. What do you hope that somebody who's caught in that struggle can take away from this book? Mm. Well, first, that they're not, they're not wrong to be frustrated, <laughs> that they're right to be frustrated. There's stuff to be frustrated about. And the problem isn't with them. And the problem isn't just with the people in their church. This is a historic problem that's been building for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's rooted in human problems that we haven't really begun to address very deeply. And so that's the first thing I'd say. You are right to be frustrated. Maybe the second thing I would say is your church will never change in time to to help you. So your journey to try to discover a new kind of Christianity, if you're going to stay Christian, your, your journey to try to find a way of life that makes sense to you, that brings all the parts of you together, the moral parts, the mystical parts, the intellectual parts, the, the practical parts, all the parts of you together, you're going to have to engage in that work yourself. But the good news is, there are a lot of other people doing it. And frankly, it's why podcasts like this are so important. You know, I, I really believe that you asked the question, what will people in the future think? I, I think what the 95 theses were to Martin Luther and the Reformation podcasts are today. They're a place where important conversations can happen and nobody can stop them. And uh, so that's what I would say. The, all the pieces are there and this is a great time to. Uh, find one or two friends you can trust and start comparing notes. And, and ironically, you know, Jesus lived at a time when he knew that if people took seriously what he was saying, they would be kicked out of their faith communities. So he says to them, you know, look, that might happen. You might get kicked out. And people who kick you out will think they're doing God's work. But listen, if two or three of you get together, and by the way, when he says in my name, I don't think he means blabbing Jesus all the time. Um, he, he doesn't say if two or three of you get together uh, obsessively and excessively using my name. <laughs> he says, if you get together in my name, and in my name means playing my part, living the way I would live, living in my way, um, I'll be there with you. So in a sense, giving them permission, if it's just two or three people, that getting together and forming one of those little communities of resistance and communities of creativity that, that's that's just fine. You have permission to do that, I think Jesus was saying. And I think that's the per permission we need now. Is there a passage from the book that you'd be willing to read and share with our listeners? Uh, yeah, I'd love to read something from chapter 7, which really relates to what we were just talking about. Uh, the title is, Because Christianity is Stuck. 
And early in the chapter, I say, look, people have all kinds of beliefs. And in my years on earth, I see no correlation between the beliefs that they hold and the quality of their character uh, or their moral quality. I see people who don't hold Christian beliefs, who are wonderful, caring people. And I see a lot of people who do hold Christian beliefs that aren't and, um, and vice versa. So, um, and then I talked about how the problem isn't just with our beliefs, though, because our beliefs are are very often uh, like the tip of the iceberg, and what's under the surface are kind of basic assumptions about how the universe works. And so, let me just read um, a couple paragraphs about that. Uh, in the old model of the universe, there were two categories of stuff: temporal, worldly things, and eternal, spiritual things. The temporal category included physical objects, bodies, and the like. Things that come and go, are born and die, grow and decay, evolve and diversify. The temporal category included the entire physical universe, all of creation, all its matter and energy, and even time, all its past, present, and future. The eternal category consisted of spirit, which is hard to define except to say it is immaterial and therefore sacred, transcendent, and supernatural meaning not subject to the laws of physics. The realm of the eternal was perfect, which meant that it was inherently unchangeable. After all, when something is perfect, there is only one way to go, down. So evolution could happen everywhere in this temporal universe, but in the realm of the eternal, nothing could ever evolve. With minor variations and few exceptions, every conventional Christian belief, creed, doctrinal statement, sermon, prayer, and book I've ever encountered was situated in this dualistic universe and shared the assumption that if something was perfect and holy, it was necessarily unchangeable, which meant if Christianity is from God, it must never, ever evolve, which means it is forever stuck, either being perfect or pretending to be perfect. Like millions of people, I've moved out of this universe. I was raised in it. I remember it, but I simply don't live there anymore. And that, that's a, a passage that seems to me to resonate with several things we've been talking about. Thank you so much for reading that for us. Uh, friends, the book is Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. The author is Brian McLaren. The book will be available May 24th. Wherever you buy books, we encourage you to support a local bookseller. Some of those small mom and pop bookstores are great uh, to grab a copy of this book. Uh, we'll put a link to uh, one of our favorites in the show notes. Um, Brian, while I've got you, I wanted to ask you about the Center for Action and Contemplation, if you don't mind. I was so grateful when it was announced you were going to be working with them. I had been deeply concerned about Richard Rohr, who's been in Port Health for several years, and what would happen to the center and their important work when he's no longer able to carry out those duties? Um, it seems like such a natural, perfect fit. It made all the sense in the world when I heard that you were going to be uh, part of the team there. Has it, has it worked that way for you? Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, I, I should say uh, that Richard and I met uh, a little over 20 years ago and have just been dear friends ever since. And 
we honestly, without any consultation, we would write a book and find out we were saying the same kinds of things. <laughs> Richard would come at it from a Catholic background. I was coming at it from a Protestant background. But we have felt that we could kind of finish each other's sentences. And I have great, great respect for him. And And I was really touched with this book, uh, Do I Stay Christian? Richard hasn't really been able to read for a couple of years. I mean, he, he's just, he's, you know, had a lot of uh, treatment for cancer, and it's been hard for him to concentrate enough to read a book. And he just sent me the most glowing, kind things about about this book. So we've been dear friends and felt uh, very much like we were involved in the same kind of work, the same kind of project. And um, and I'm so happy first that Richard has survived and he's he's doing okay. He's getting frail, um, and uh, and he's very honest about. Feel, saying that he feels that happening. And I'm very happy that the Center for Action Contemplation is trying to say, how can we continue Richard's legacy by expanding the legacy of the CAC to include other people that are tapping in uh, to the historic uh, uh, mystical traditions, uh, the, the Christian traditions of contemplation and action, which are because they're mystical, are... Uh, very neighborly and and very uh, cordial and interested and fraternal with uh, mystical and contemplative traditions outside of Christianity. So uh, it, it's it's very encouraging to see that, and and it's not easy for an organization with an extraordinary founder to keep going when that founder is no longer with us. But I think uh, the pieces are in place for that to happen at CAC, and I'm doing whatever I can to help that happen. And, and I should add, you know, uh, the other uh, current faculty members we have, uh, previously, she, she's retired recently, but Cynthia Bourgeau uh, made such great con- contributions. I, I've just fallen in love with Jim Finley. What an amazing human being, gifted writer and just a, a, a leader and an example. And um, Barbara Holmes, who is absolutely not only brilliant, but just a good human being, too and brings a, another whole stream that the CAC is welcoming and needs, which is to draw from the great uh, Black tradition uh, and uh, a whole different experience, a different kind of contemplation and action. And uh, so I, I think good things are, are coming together there. Well, it sounds like the CAC is in very good hands, and I'm so grateful that the work continues there. And uh, just so grateful for Father Richard and all that he's done and taught us over the years. I really feel like in a real, I've never met him, but I really feel like in a real way, he's my teacher, you know? Yes. He's taught so many of us so many things and prepared yes. us for the messages of folks like you, you know? And uh, anyway, so grateful for the work. And we'll put a link to the CAC uh, in the show notes as well. So you guys who are listening can uh, find your way to their website to find out what Brian and others are doing there. Uh, Brian, what's the best way for our friends who are listening to engage with you and your work online? So my website is just my name, net, And then at that website, there are links to my Twitter and Instagram and Facebook that they can keep track of me that way. Um, and they'll find, uh, they can find out about my books and uh, and podcasts and other kinds of uh, resources. Yeah, it's net. All right, friends, we're going to put links to all of that. Brian's website, his social media, the CAC, a link to the book so you can get your copy pre-ordered. And um, thank you so much, Brian, for being with us. It's been a gift 
to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. And seriously, thank you for you as a podcaster creating space for these these conversations and for people who who take their faith seriously that they want it seriously enough that they want it to make sense and be honest and make them better people that's a great thing thanks for listening to this episode of the messy spirituality podcast if you found it meaningful please rate and review the show on itunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at MessySpirituality.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.